0: Man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater, Andrew in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes.
1: Say something about what the president has just shown us. The president of Law and Order, as he now calls himself, that which is how he pronounced himself, and then he claimed a power he doesn't really have. He can't send the military into every state. That's that's not law and order. What the president doesn't seem to know or care is that the vast majority of those protesting, they too are calling for law and order. A black man killed with four officers holding him down a knee to the neck. For more than eight minutes, nearly three minutes of which he was no longer conscious for. That's not law and order. That's murder. Stopping and frisking a young black man simply because he's a young black man. That's not law and order. The killing of George Floyd, Eric Garner, the torture of Abner Louima. That's not law and order. The president seems to think that dominating black people, dominating peaceful protesters is law and order. It's not. He calls them thugs. Who is the thug here? Hiding in a bunker? Hiding behind a suit? Who is the thug? People have waited for days for this wannabe wartime president to say something. And this is what he says, and that is what he does. I've seen societies fall apart as a reporter. I've seen people dying in the streets while protesting. I've seen countries ripped apart by hate and misinformation and lies and political demagogues and racism. We can't let that happen here. Of course, violence is no answer, but people protesting deserve answers, and they haven't gotten them. No matter how many black men have been murdered, lynched, imprisoned, mistreated, redlined, blackballed from jobs, we all know it. People protesting in the streets, they know it, and they're tired of it, and we should be too. There's a curfew in New York tonight at 11 p.m., and we remember another curfew, August 1943. That was the last time there was a curfew like this in the city. And you know what that curfew was caused by? 1943, a white police officer shooting a black soldier. The years change, the decades go by, and the sad truth remains.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. The family of One Heat Minute and the crew of extended folk, um, there's one thing that we do really great, and it's like we... Once we know that we love the thing we're talking about, whether that's heat, whether that's Last of the Mohicans, whether that's Inherent Vice, whether that's all the president's men, whenever I talk to the new and wonderful growing family members of this crew, uh, they always say, you know, that was fun. But if you don't talk to, insert this person's name here, this whole project's a failure. And so you haven't heard an upcoming episode just yet, and you won't have heard it. By the time you're listening to this, but um, my main man at Rolling Stone, friend to both Bill Gerberi and I, Mr. David Fear, is joining us on the show in a couple of episodes time. And David coming on as part of the show said, Blake, if you don't get my wonderful friend, Joshua Rothkoff, the former film editor at Time Out New York i mean he's like this guy and i had photographic verification has a shelf at home dedicated to watergate on his bookshelf if you don't get this guy this great film mind to wrangle with you a minute of this film the projects of failure essentially and i said well that's that's enough of a charge to get this man on the show i'm an admirer of his work Uh, He writes for the New York Times now, Sight and Sound. As I said, former film editor at Time Out New York. You can find all of his stuff through um, online channels, as you guys would know. I don't need to tell you that, but it's a pleasure to talk to Josh. Josh, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes.
2: Thank you for having me, Blake.
0: So here we are. We're in the middle of a Dahlberg, Mr. Dahlberg conversation right now. (laughs) A Kenneth... (laughs) A Kenneth Dahlberg and McGregor conversation. One of the famous scenes of this film, one of the great single takes with a great flub at the end that just kept in, the beauty of Robert Redford's face, thinking and sort of grinding gears in his mind about how am I going to navigate these two like now converging conversations to verify information that I need. Can you tell me before we start we're in this crazy world there is so much happening right now that is reminiscent of like even cinema and 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 social upheaval as there was in 68 to 1980 as people have talked about it. I think even Ben Shapiro said, congratulations, you guys have taken us back to 1968 (laughs) to 80 and people are like, great. There's going to be great movies. There's going to be great music. There's going to be, there's going to be civil rights progression. Uh, you know, here we are. And right now we're here in this 1976 moment about a 1972 to 74 investigation. Um, what, what is your relationship as a guy who has a Watergate shelf to all the president's men?
2: That's a very complex uh, question, <laughs> and I um, again I just want to thank you for inviting me on, and, and I'm, I'm flattered that Dave recommended it to you. Uh, so thank you to him as well. I um, we're at the tip of the Dahlberg, you could say. I mean, this is this whole you know there's a lot to discuss with just this minute, but I guess let me start personally. Um, my connection to Watergate and Nixon is. It's weird. It's like um, Richard Nixon died in 1994 in April, and I was at the time. I'm going to date myself. I was in film school. Oh, can you hear this dog barking outside? <laughs> there is it's a dog all, barking. All out.
0: part of the atmosphere. All part of the atmosphere. Okay,
2: all right. So at the time, I was a I was a a young guy in his early 20s in film school, and uh, I was I had read the obituaries, but I didn't really know much about Richard Nixon. I I think I knew as much as what most people knew. Guy got, you know, he resigned. I knew, you know, I am not a crook and I knew the jokes about him. But that was kind of it. And I read these obituaries and I was absorbed by them. And around the time, this is really gonna date me, there are these things called (laughs) laserdists. And um, me and my film school friends, we were getting to know this uh, thing called the Criterion Collection where you could actually see movies in letterbox format on a Laserdisc. Mm. And one of the earliest Laserdiscs that they had, I think in, in 92, um, was uh, a movie called Secret Honor by Robert Altman. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one, um, but it's a very unusual Robert Altman film. It has one actor in it um, instead of an ensemble, and that actor is playing Richard Nixon. It's Philip Baker Hall. Yes, from Magnolia and everything.
0: I've only seen clips of this movie on on the YouTube and things like that.
2: Very hard to come by. It's a very strange movie, and strange coming from Altman, who is (laughs) extremely left wing. And uh, this was, I think, you could ultimately say a sympathetic portrayal going through the whole history of Watergate and his his life and. I just watched this movie and I was like, I need to understand it. Who are, we? you know, all these names, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Magruder, you know, and, and Liddy, and, and Manolo the butler, and all these different, <laughs> and I was like, I need to understand, what, what is this? And I started reading books about Watergate. Another thing was the um, the Nixon t- transcripts started to come out. I mean, there were I started buying books of the transcripts, and if you're in film school writing scripts, um, and you're reading these transcripts. They they basically read like David Mannix. It's basically a bunch of, of of guys swearing at each other, calling. You know, they're all named Bob. But you know, they're they're all angry at each other. And it's like if, if, if you're if you're getting into screenplays. I mean, this was like gold. So it was it was a combination of reading more and more about Watergate and 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 reading these transcripts, and then I reached a point where. I knew what Nixon's favorite music was, um, Victory at Sea. I knew what his favorite movie was, um, which was Patton. And I knew so much biographical information. Of course information.
0: it was Patton. Of course it was Patton.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a whole book called uh, Nixon at the Movies that Mark Feeney wrote, which is all about Nixon's choices of movies and how they elucidate his presidency. And, and the more books I read, the more I, I appreciated Nixon. Also, at the same time, my my love of cinema was growing, um, and I found myself really resonating with the films of the early 70s, um, movies like The Conformist yeah. and Chinatown and The Conversation, and even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think is a really brilliant metaphor for American class warfare during the Nixon era, and, and almost an intentional one. Toby Hooper was a, a professor when he made that film, um, and it was I found myself, um, and I was like a lot of people in the nineties, I was listening to the Carpenters, even the new music I was listening to was sort of tinged with the early seventies. And I, I found myself becoming very nostalgic for a period that I only barely remembered when I was an infant, more nostalgic for the early seventies than even for the eighties, which is when I was a teenager. Yes. Uh, Now I'm nostalgic for everything like just going out and having a steak, but, uh, (laughs) But uh, but that was I, I mean I really found that um, I mean the takeaway from all this and I'm sorry to be long winded but I really found my appreciation for Nixon growing and his story becomes more of a tragedy when you can see how brilliant he really was especially in certain contexts of you know global um, global triangulation of politics and and um, you know starting the EPA there are a lot of things that people generally point to with Nixon uh, which makes his his fall from grace. Um, Extra tragic, uh, and I and Watergate is just endlessly fascinating to me. There have been novelizations of Watergate, and great um, you know histories and biography. Uh, there was just a recent biography of Nixon that I love by John Farrell called Nixon: Alive. Life. Um, there's a lot of good stuff out there. It's a kind of a closet obsession of mine.
0: Well, now it's we're coming out of that closet to reveal that it it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's a flat out obsession. It's it's it's. Really funny how certain gateway films just you dive through a whole era, and I think that that's that's something that I anyone who's sort of my age to your age in the spectrum between us, which is not too far, is that that whole concept of you see a film and sometimes it is just a complete gateway. Now this film sometimes is a gateway to all of them. Absolutely, m- just I, I want to say it's like a a circus because it really is. Like if you listen to ne- Leon Nafark's beautiful first season of Slow Burn, um, or you watch the TV series that it's based on, it is a circus that it's around there. So where all the president's men, as we talk about in this show, we're focusing on the most lean and blinkered and dogged investigation right at the heart of it. In fact, this weird sort of debris that orbits this crazy thing in, in they're, they're now huge tranches of information or huge books or huge explorations in and of themselves because they've become so fascinating. So it's this weird thing. It is this whole, I don't know, it has a gravity, this being at the center and the investigation. And I also think what's so funny and just unconscionable to someone in Australia, but uh, you're now like the second or third person I've spoken to about it is the printing of those transcripts, they were like phone books that sat in your house. You know, a friend of the show, Sean Byrne, said, like his dad had transcripts and they used them as doorstops because like their yeah. par- his parents like poured over them. And then they're just these massive books that you could buy all the transcripts of Watergate. And then where did they go? Yeah. Well, they c- held the doors open in the house.
2: basically. <laughs> they, they, and they, they come in separate volumes. I have a whole set of them. And there's also, I mean, apart from just Watergate transcripts, there's, there's just the tapes of Nixon. Nixon decided to have this recording yes. system, uh, Long before Watergate even happened, and that in and of itself is gold. I mean, if you just want to read, really compel. I mean, if you're thinking about it in terms of a screenplay, it's like it's like catnip. I mean, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. The criminality is insane, off the charts. Even and even when they make tangents, it's funny. But uh, but also it's it's and and that obsession is something that's shared by a lot. I mean, I recently discovered that Paul Thomas Anderson. Is equally obsessed with Secret Honor as I am, and he um, would watch the movie constantly. And it's how he wanted to get Philip Baker Hall in his movie because mm. he was wow. like, "That's the guy from Secret Honor." And you know, you learn who does a good Nixon and who does a bad Nixon. And Philip Baker Hall is like beyond impersonation. He's like, you know, he's understanding the the sense of um, you know class resentment and entitlement and, and anti elitism, and anyway. I got to stop myself. You're going to find that in our conversation. I'm going
0: to go on a lot, too many. And, 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 uh, we can, we can go on many tangents. That is exactly, this is the, this is the, the battleground you've been waiting for is, is this, it does it doesn't surprise me. You know, it doesn't, it, 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 it certainly doesn't surprise me with, uh, with PTA that he would love. He's obviously obsessed with Altman, but particularly just that, um, I mean it's, the, it's it's the Philip Baker Hall quality, but it's that this small diminutive guy who just gets intuitively into a character and you see him with Philip Seymour Hoffman who is like you know the leading man version of that, like a, who can just carry a whole movie. you can just carry it, the entire thing. and even yeah. though other things might orbit around it, it's like when that guy's on the screen, he's the star of the movie. like whenever he approaches it and I can I can definitely see that. but that that whole new Hollywood era it brings us back to this and this becomes the seminal text. So when you were diving back through retroactively going, exploring through Nixon, how far along that trajectory was this movie and, or or was it the book first that you sort of encountered uh, the, the work of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein?
2: I, um, I'm pretty sure I saw the movie first. Yes. The movie, the movie is, um, I think it's an essential signpost along the way of one's education in '70s cinema, and it's been said before that—and this is not an original idea—that the '70s pivots roughly halfway through, and the movies start to become more optimistic, post Watergate, post Vietnam, um, and the happy endings start. And all the President's Men is right on that pivot point. It's a happy ending. Sort of, but it ends very, with with a big dose of paranoia as, as darkly and cynically as possible. It's basically an early 70s movie. You know, yes. Alan Pakula got the job because of Parallax View. It's more like that than it is like Star Wars or Rocky. This is, yes, I guess you could say it's a happy ending, but um, the happy ending means that our president lied to us and should have... <laughs> And we don't even get to see that at the end of this movie. And I watched this, this film and, and found myself thinking, like, this this was popular entertainment. Like, this, <laughs> is, this is something that people would, I mean, and people already knew how it ended. So, it's, I mean, why why make it like a thriller if, if, if there's no suspense, really? But there's massive amounts of suspense. That's the paradox of the film. I, I um, so. I thought- I think that your
0: that that's so funny the way that you particularly articulate that which is this is popular entertainment because that's exactly the same <laughs> word, I've been trying to find what it is I'm like I just can't believe it exists I can't believe that they got it <laughs> over the line I can't believe that they like yeah. because even even years later people are like oh they made the facebook movie too early and then it's only in 2020 you're like no they made it at exactly the right time because if they right. made that movie now, it would feel quaint and trite. But then they were kind of right on the curb. They were right just cresting that this is as much information as we could get into. This is much about the personalities and much about the egos that drove this behemoth that's, you know, going to have this huge influence over our entire lives. And But yeah, so at that time, you've got the social network. But I, I always think about that with this movie. I'm like, I, I can't yeah. believe that people went out yeah. and saw it like this
2: en masse. This is the yeah. movie to see. I, and with big stars, and I mean, it was really uh, it was something I think that Hollywood was very proud to make as well. Mm. Um, it's 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 a very complicated moment. Watergate is is obviously something that um, it means a lot in journalism circles. It means a lot to journalists. The whole idea of rooting out corruption, but uh, but it's the ending of Watergate and the resignation of the president um, was not cathartic. It wasn't at least. From what I've read, I, I was not old enough to remember this firsthand. I was just a kid, but it wasn't 100% cathartic, and that's why David Frost's interview with Richard Nixon was so important because Nixon had to be confronted with his own shame and acknowledge it, and that's why the catharsis came later. But after I saw the film and my my Nixon obsession kind of grew, I read I read the book. This is. This is my first edition of it. (laughs) Um, Wow. And yes, I I thought I'd break it out, and I reread the section that we're talking about today because it's very interesting how they changed the facts for the sake of the script. William Goldman is basically a genius, and there's a lot lot that we're about to discuss that is just pure screenwriting talent. But um, yeah, yeah, and, and I've read this book several times because I find it interesting that um, they wrote about themselves in the third person. Um, you know, that the, the, you've read all the presidents oh, course, ben, and, they're, about, and they're, they're, they, they have a remarkable distance where they're able to see themselves from the outside.
0: Yeah. I've, I, I always find it strange because I go back constantly throughout this journey. I've read the book, you know, many times and I go back often for scenes when I like, I just want to see how this played out. Um, especially mm-hmm. what's omitted because you know, when you. Um <laughs> I know this sentence is a strange sentence to say but I'm going to say it anyway cuz it's for this show it's like in the run up to rat fucking there's a lot more in there <laughs> uh, there's a lot more that brings you around to all of the machinations of how the the big players and that got there and then the conflicts and when you finally get to that moment I often go back to the book and go. This was months. This was months of dogged journalism, of avoiding yeah. questions, of yeah. grand jury trials, and all this sort of stuff. So there's sort of those bits that you find to fill in. But that I, I found that really disconcerting and strange the first time I read it because I'm like, these guys are talking about themselves like characters,
2: right? In the strange, right.
0: and in a strange, in a strange way. But it's it's not like a character in a fiction.
2: No, I I, I think that it's. Um, and I, I find that very beautiful in a way, almost poetic. The idea that like this happened, really, like this <laughs> this really happened, and these two people that we just we can't believe we were these people. So we're just gonna call them Woodward and Bernstein, even though we're writing the book. Yeah. You know, it's like, and I, I, I I'm I'm very moved by that. And I also think it's just the right decision. And uh, you know, I mean, it's it's a fascinating. The book is the beginning of a process of a love of process. The movie is too. I mean, there are process movies like many of the Michael Mann movies you've discussed and this movie and maybe something like Zodiac where you're just like, yes. I, I feel like process movies are in a way kind of like a genre themselves. Yes. And and, and I think that that's part of why I love it.
0: I, I talked to Justin Chang and I think we were, we were referencing the term termite art. Um, which I right. think is Manny, Farber. Manny Farber's and, and, and it's just yeah. so, so, so enrapturing it, just watching people do things and grind through a process. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I think also, um, great TV shows that do it, that sort of go against that investigative genres, like the true detective, you know, the true detective series, like, especially towards the end of that sure. first series. Uh, I love there's so many scenes in Woody Harrelson's office. Uh, where he's sitting there with, uh, you know, uh, Rust and Cole um, and, uh, and he, McConaughey and uh, Harrelson are sitting there and they're just staring at a wall that they've assembled. We've watched them assemble it. They're staring at evidence going something jump out. And there's, and the very moment that we're approaching in this movie is like that. It's like, I'm going to have these conversations. I'm going to ask these questions. They're going to be super loaded. I don't know where they're going to go, but in this, in just the preceding 60 seconds and we're going to dive through it. And this is like the bombs all start to drop. It's like all the hits start to land. It's like, Oh my God. And I love how you put it, the tip of the Dahlberg. That is so wonderful. We're, we're there. We're so, yeah. It's So great. Look, let's, let's dive into this minute right now. It is the 52nd minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, all the president's men. We're going to watch it together. Josh and I, we're going to come back and unpack and talk about it and continue diving all the way through. And finally, this confessional will be Josh's, you know, uh, out, outing of his Watergate and Nixon obsession, which is, is just wonderful. So we're going to do that. You guys are going to listen along and we're going to come back and talk about it.
1: I don't know. But you're head of the committee, sir. Look, I just came aboard. John Mitchell was the head of the
2: committee. He
1: might know. Well, what would the explanation possible? I don't for-
2: know. You're implying that I should know. If you print that, our relationship will be
1: terminated. Sir, we don't have a relationship. The issues of the campaign are peace and prosperity, not a campaign check. Bye. Sir, no one is Bye. saying anything. I came Mr. Aboard.
2: Dahlberg is Under online, 16, too. For the reelection of the
1: president, we've raised $60 million. Uh, and you're asking about a $25,000 check. Mr. McGregor, excuse me. Could you hold one second, please, sir? All right. Thank you. Yes. Mr. Hello, Mr. Dahlberg. Yes. Could you please hold one second, sir? Uh, yes. Thank you, Mr. McGregor. Yeah. Can I call you right back, sir? I'm yeah. very sorry. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Dalberg.
2: Yes. Uh, I'm sorry I hung up before. I wasn't sure you were a Washington Post reporter. I believe
1: we were talking about a twenty-five thousand dollar check. Um, uh, obviously, this this is difficult for
0: me. Obviously, Josh. Obviously, um, this is <laughs> this is difficult for me. A tough, a, uh, a, poetic, a poetic spot to end that discussion. But I, I think what is great about this minute, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it, is for me, I love the tension of both conversations. I just love watching the... When you just agonize over every line, it's like, oh... Don't give me your political spin, BS. You are talking to a reporter. Don't give, you know, don't, don't, don't try and show me the stats and try and divert from what the question is. And he, he huge, massive eye rolls that you only give to yourself. And then mm-hmm. when Dahlberg's back, it's like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to talk to the guy who's spinning this. I want to talk to the guy who's going to
2: confess. Fully, fully agreed. I just, I love watching that clip. And uh, I have to say, I. I just want to. I want to make sure. In your last episode, did you did we talk about? Did you guys talk about the split diopter? What a split diopter is. Do you know how that thing works?
0: Yes. So we have talked about the split diopter before a couple of times uh, on the show. But please, it's good for people to refresh because it is a. It's it's a technique in and of it's, itself.
2: And it's so it's fascinating because the minute we're talking about is the very end of the split diopter. Basically, a split diopter. The easiest way to think about it is like. Imagine the camera has a pair of eyeglasses in front of it and just covering half of it. So it's basically just like a lens in front of half of the camera lens. And so half of the camera lens is nearsighted and half of it is farsighted. It's a fixed distance. There's nothing really very complicated about this. In fact, in film school, this is a low-budge technique. People use eyeglasses to make their own, like, the <laughs> see, you know, diopters. You put it in front of the camera and then you can get your Brian De Palma shot or whatever. But what we're seeing, though, at the end of this diopter shot, which is the, right at the beginning of our moment, you those people in the distance are going to be in focus the whole shot. The only thing that's going to block them out is this white column. Yes. So it's it's interesting. It's not just a zoom. It's almost a repositioning. They have to be pushed off the screen. They have to be pushed off the screen, and that happens right at the beginning of our moment, which I love because it's it's it's. Cause it's a very symbolic gesture it's sort of like we're tightening in our scope on the real story and I, I really wonder if that visual metaphor was was discussed with Redford because it's like they're they're having a very serious conversation about an important event over there I don't know I, again I, I don't want to steal anyone's thunder if you've already talked about this in your last episode
0: that, l- listen J- Josh I can I can just tell you is the, the ways that the minutes intersect and how there's dialogues between the different guests about different things is exactly why I love hosting the show. And I think exactly why people love listening to it. So it's just.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently to the untrained ear. Everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: Those intersecting moments because it's impossible when you're talking about this scene, not to talk about some key elements and obviously not to talk about, you know, from a technical standpoint, this shot, this guy uh, who is... Who, who is loath to do a speedy zoom to take people out of it but is also maybe the most famous slow zooming cameraman who's yep. ever lived in the history of Hollywood yep. like some of the most famous slow zooms ever, this guy's movies, you know especially the opening to the Godfather part one. Um, yeah, so I, I think you intersect away you don't have to worry about that. I think that's part I mean
2: of if you th- if you think about um, the slow zoom that Wills does, Uh, with Michael and the Godfather when he comes up with the idea of shooting Sterling Hayden, shooting the cop and the way that everyone else in the room falls off and suddenly we're zooming in on this younger brother, you know, he's in the chair in the center of the room and suddenly everyone is pushing out and we're seeing for the first time, Michael in his power, that's Gordon Wills using a zoom. And this is only four years later, really. Um, I feel like, uh, it should. I mean, this is this is me geeking out. But what they're watching on the TV is uh, George McGovern's announcement that his running mate is dropping out because yes. he's and so uh, and that was Eagleton. It's actually it's significant. The McGovern campaign is is imploding basically, and they don't even have a vice presidential candidate who didn't have shock therapy. And and and, <laughs> and, and Nixon is. Nixon seems inevitable, right? You know, And so that really is the big story that's happening. But we're seeing our hero on the right kind of exploring a story that is going to become the big story. Um, I think that that's fascinating. What I've learned in, in reading all the, all the President's Men and other sources is that these phone calls took place over two or three days. They were not one phone call. Um, he spoke to Ken Dahlberg over... Two or three days um and but 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 it's fascinating the way william gold the way the way the way the screenplay kind of consolidates them all into one conversation right yes. because it, it turns it turns him it turns redford into kind of this almost like a conductor love of music the way he uses his hands the way he he touches his forehead and is kind of like hold on please let me bring this voice back in and he's he's kind of almost like swimming his way through a chop to find the real story. Um, and that's just, that's just Goldman being a boss. Basically.
0: <laughs> it's, I, I love it because it also has that magical quality of when Dahlberg calls back and he does it so quickly. It's a lot. It's, it's one of those lies that Hollywood can tell you that you, you forgive. You're like, it, it's okay. Uh-huh. For, for mm-hmm. the agony of the process and the timing that we watch these guys pound pavement with their feet, you know, drive, drive the grid of Washington DC looking for people. It's in this kind of moment, as you said, I love the conductor is exactly, uh, is exactly the kind of thing I was thinking of you louder, you softer, you come in here, mm-hmm. you noise over there, you quiet down. This is what it is. And he's con- being the conductor in that moment, right in the center. And I just love, I, I just love that there's a map. That absolutely as, as mad as it is true, as mad as it is true that <laughs> like my wife was kidnapped, as mad my neighbor's wife was kidnapped. Yeah. As mad as that is true, how then that seamlessly integrates into this conversation? And he sort of cuts through to get to that moment. Such a great thing. Yeah, and,
2: and, again, uh, that's 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 such a fascinating piece of dramatization because actually, I don't know if you noticed or not, but that kidnapping was was major news. Huge. That person who was kidnapped, yeah, right, that's Virginia Piper, and she was held ransom for a million dollars, which was, I think, a first at the time, and it kind of gives you an indication of Dahlberg's life. He wasn't really, there's nothing criminal about Kenneth Dahlberg. He was a, he was a fighter pilot and a war hero. He, was, uh, he invented a hearing aid and was like a multimillionaire. He was a big campaign uh, contributor, and he was... He had a place in Boca Raton. He was like partly retired. He was, <laughs> he was the other person on the, on the phone, uh, McGregor, that guy who he's talking to, who's the, the, the chair of the committee, he had a reputation, I think, of being very um, amenable towards press. He was actually one of the nice people who talked to reporters in the Nixon officials. So what what's happening here is that the movie is kind of giving a shape to the facts and kind of skewing it towards drama where you have Dahlberg saying something that I think audiences might view as a distraction. My, my, my neighbor's been kidnapped. Um, and you and you hear that and you're like, "That I'll give you a break, that can't be true, but it really was true, right? And and then you hear this other guy saying, we've raised $60 million, and the issues of the campaign are peace and prosperity. You think he's just like a, a stooge, but that's the way he's that performance is being directed. He was actually one of the more helpful people. It's again, it's it's there is a point of view in this film and as 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 wonderfully process driven as it is it's it's not objective it's definitely not objective it's subjective no
0: when the heroes are the i mean there cannot be anything more like sorry there's nothing more subjective than bob woodward being played by robert redford there is nothing more subjective <laughs> than that to have such cast cath- <laughs> yeah <laughs> we all yeah. it's the casting of everyone's dreams um and, right. and it's it's there is there is the romanticism of that but but I think but but I think you're right it's also him at that center of that subjective perspective especially that guy you know this character who he, he's got an ear for bs and spin and he doesn't want to hear it and what's so funny right. is at this green moment because it's kind of like this awakening moment we're getting to the getting into the business end of this movie where these guys actually start to get quite capable. They're already capable journalists, but get very capable investigative journalists as part of their job. And and here, something is huge. Like, it's like an explosion of a distraction. Oh, my, my neighbor's wife is kidnapped. He just dismisses it. I love it as a... I think it as a character beat, it's so insightful for Woodward in this moment to go, nope, like, I don't want you spin. Right. I don't want your kidnapped neighbor. What happened to that $25,000 yeah.
2: check? Yeah, and, and you notice he, yeah, he looks up, he almost to, to the camera, not exactly into the lens, and he says, I believe we were talking about a $25,000 check. And it's just sort of like, you're being a journalist. You're screwing down, right, Chef's <laughs> kiss? But it, it, it's being persistent. It's also, I think, um, it's kind of, it's, it's It's not showy acting no. like I think that that's another thing about this performance that I really like. I mean Redford's got a got a devoted six minute close up here mm-hmm. um which is rare. It's, it's rare strange, for any right? actor to have that kind of like devoted amount of close up time in a movie, even in the seventies that's rare, but he's not filling it up with actorly business he's not he's it's a very quiet six minutes. He has an eye roll or two, yeah. But, but, and there's that one moment where he's almost like praying, like, please tell me this, you know, information you're about to tell me. But, but basically he, it's just him talking into the phone, being forceful and looking right up. And that's, that's pure acting. That's very stripped down crap.
0: I, I, which do, I, love about that. I, 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 I love it too. I, I, I love that. It's none of, if he was putting, you know, that baseball is like if he was putting more, you know, a little bit of something on the ball in this performance like if he was trying too hard right. it, it would reek because you can't hide in a six minute close-up like you can't hide so yeah. that's sort of more organic just i'm going to roll with the punches and i think when we talk about craft also just want to underscore how incredible the voice actors are on the other end so i don't know i, I spoke to a, a voice artist you know episode 35 um tasia valencia and Tayshia is, uh, you know, done a million video games and movies, and was a young starlet at, 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 as a young actor about sixteen years of age, and I was talking to her about a lot of the phone scenes, and I was like, "How do you think? How do you think Mr. Pakula would have been doing them?" And she's like, "Often it would be, um, you know, with scenes like this, she's like, I can only imagine that they're there, like the people who he's talking to are." adjacent to the camera to help him with his performance and i'm just like even that in and of itself of like the that beautiful imitation that pretend of going i've got two people here and we're going to have these performances happening concurrently and him acting into the void it's like all those excuses people made about how terrible the acting was in the star wars prequels because people are acting to a green screen i'm like look at the phone calls in all the presidents met like here's a guy who's not acting across from anyone and is giving us authentic emotions. Is giving us character insights. Giving us beats. Giving it, it's like I don't care if there's a tennis ball there. I don't care if there's a first AD reading the <laughs> lines of who is eventually going to be on the end of the phone. Look at what Redford is able to do. And and, and even yeah. if, and if they're not there because it's messy, it's a huge, active, vibrant live set. There's sound going places. Split up, There's complex camera moves, even though they're subtle if that's just a one AD that's reading those lines for Redford or another actor or whatever, just on set, giving him, giving him the courtesy of like reading the lines as they should be heard. It's an incredible performance. It's incre- like, it's just, it's, it, it, it's yeah. so rich.
2: Yeah. It's rich. And it, and it shows the discipline that I don't think, rich uh, I don't think Redford gets credit for. He, he, he is, he's, he's never really been a showy actor. Yes. I think the. it's, he's fair, he's often compared to Brad Pitt, you know, and I think that that's a, that that's a very fair. apt comparison. Yeah. And and I and and I feel like that kind of like you say that, that screwing down that kind of that kind of quiet intensity, I think that's harder to do. I mean, I, I I love this moment in the film. I also love what it means in terms of Watergate arcana and just the history of this moment. Um, this was the first time, by the way, that that following the money led to anything. This was the very first time yes. that I, and even, even that phrase, follow the money, um, it, 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 it comes basically from this movie. Mm. Um, it doesn't come from all the president's men. That line isn't in the book. No. It was something that, no. that Goldman puts in there. And, it's, and this is the scene where we first see that strategy actually playing out, that it leads to a security fund and a slush fund it leads to the other Mexican checks being investigated and money laundering. I mean, this is really the essence of this journalistic tactic paying off dividends. Yes, um, That's that's incredible. If you kind of, if you identify historically what this significance of this moment is, and then couple that with a crazy diopter shot and <laughs> Redford's acting, it's it's very easy. I, and I don't even think this is hyperbole. It's 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 easy to call this the moment of the movie, like the most, crucial moment of the film because it's really, and it also is a moment when Woodstein as a couple, um, as a pair really began to gel. It was with the discovery of the Dahlberg check um, you know Bernstein found the check Woodward pursued it. I don't think Bernstein would have had the patience to juggle those calls. He wouldn't have had the manners you know what I mean? He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have handled it as gracefully please, I'm sorry, hold on let me call you back that, that's that's Woodward being kind of genteel and mannered, um, and I feel like it's the it's the combination of the two of them. After this piece was written, that came from this phone call. After this this piece that that Woodward wrote with this phone call was the first time their bylines appeared together. Yes, and after after every piece after they would have both bylines. So I think that that that's significant too.
0: Extremely significant, and uh, and I think it's also one of these moments where. It's it's also you know I I, I'm gonna continue to go back to call tip of the Dalberg, but it's I also love that from this point on too, both these actors from a really uh, construct in a constructive way go. I'm gonna know his line so I can butt in, and it's like that moment where they start to be in sync. Everything else is they they're completely opposing on opposing tracks, and I think. As we increase, they start to parrot the same sort of things interrupting each other. They do it as a tech, it's a you know a great technique, and it's that shows that connection. It's very implicit. It's so, so subtle. But it's but it's it's then the more time that Carl Bernstein spends with the Woodward that we see in this screen and on these calls, the more we believe that he can do the bookkeeper scene. Because he is so yeah, his touch is so light and so deliberate and just helps to eke out every bit of information and 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 will say any you know nice little platitude to continue the conversation and and to continue the interaction the sort of blustery my paper needs a print i need your opinion like that's happening in the preceding minutes Mm -hmm. to this one it doesn't it's completely incongruous to that guy and and him really flexing those muscles later so satisfying because it's like oh these guys can do both they can be they can be the genteel one And they can be the hard ass. And this is why they work together because they kind of see what the, they read the terrain of the situation and they, and they, and they tackle it. And, and if they're both together, they can take two tacks of the same problem at every single encounter.
2: And I think that's exactly what they did. They, they kept separate lists of contacts. In fact, there were times when a contact would, would be contacted by both of them individually and would say, don't you talk to Bernstein? Don't you talk to your partner? <laughs> because I just have phone with him. Because, yeah, and, and, and this scene that, this one minute that we've discussed, um, it shows the finesse side. It really shows that, I mean, because being that kind of hard-charging journalist, that's very exciting to watch, that's Hoffman doing that kind of performance, which he's done time and again, but, but the finesse of an interview, as you well know, um, that's harder. I think that's harder to do, you know, it's harder to cajole someone into telling you and it's, it's both being forceful and at the same time letting them give you what you need to hear. I mean, it's, it's,
0: it's really hard. And this is the other thing that you and I've had the luxury of is we're usually talking to people who want to talk. You know, I had the great Monica Castillo on the phone uh, uh, for the show very recently. And you know, she talked about that exact, challenge she's like there are so many people that you talk to and they just they're great and they're giving they they're excited about a project they're excited about a script they're excited about their body of work they're excited about working with an actor or a director and it's like the mastery of this is that like these shula shula the journalists in the in the post newsroom are calling a whole bunch of people who do not want to say anything to them and i know that you and i to a certain extent in a much smaller percentage you do talk to people who have no desire to talk to you when you're conducting an interview. And it's literally that, how do I, how can we massage this? How can we eke it out? How can maybe I ask a question that is right on the line that is either going to get a meaty answer to a question or going to end
2: the interview immediately? How can I do that? I mean, there's different strategies. I once read um, uh, Chuck Klosterman, the music writer. Yes. He once told, uh, said that he had a, he has a theory that, you should start, when you're doing an interview, with your most provocative question. Yes. You, you should start the interview, the very first question with like, and I think he did this with Jimmy Page, where he was like, how did you quit heroin, or you, <laughs> how were you able to make presents when you were so, I, I remember there was an, and, and I think, because he asked this question, it's, it's a very ballsy move. It, it's like you say, it's going right on that line, maybe a little bit further, you either gain the respect of the subject and we'll have a great interview or the interview ends immediately. Yes. One of those two things <laughs> is going to happen. And, it, and, and and I feel like every journalist has to try that out a couple of times. I think with with Redford in this scene, we're watching him realize, we're watching Woodward realize that he is basically talking to a sweet old guy. He is Dahlberg is not the enemy here. No. He, he knows that if he focuses him down and, 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 and starts in again mm-hmm. and says, we were talking about a $25,000 check, and really screws down on that, he, that slightest bit of pressure is going to work. Yes. This isn't like having to dance around some Nixon official. This is, this is him pivoting in a very subtle way between two different interview strategies. That never makes it into a movie. I mean, I wish there was a whole movie <laughs> called "Interview Strategies." Instead, it's called "All the Presidents Met." You know,
0: it's it's there's only one other one, and they're definitely kindred spirits in movies that I uh, that they take the Chuck Klosterman approach. And it's and it's the Insider. It's the first. it's yeah. the first Mike Wallace question in the Insider: Are you a terrorist? Well, and uh, right, and and you can see the question everyone yeah. wants answered. Yeah, and and as soon as that question goes, it's like. Oh, that's the power of Walt. Like he's—that's the power of Mike Wallace and the confidence as a journalist is that we can continue to unpack all the different layers and degrees, and I, you can get it out. But if I don't ask this question, the question exactly as you said, the one question everyone wants you to ask. If you don't ask it the right way up front, it's like who cares? Mm-hmm. It's 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 the
2: power of the press and it's the power of doing a good interview. And uh, and I and I do like the fact that our minute ends with. The guy just caving so beautifully and saying, "Obviously, all right." You hear that? <laughs> obviously, no. You know that he's won. You know, it's it, it, it's like it's my Rocky. It's the victory dance, making it to the top of the stairs because he says, "Obviously, this is difficult for me," and and Woodward knows that he's he's gotten the information. I, I,
0: I, there's there are certain words. There are certain words that after you've asked a really tough question that you want to hear they, they they are they are they are just like sirens they're just like they're like that meme where those those guys dance with a coffin like that's that's the and that, and that word is obviously well obviously well here we go here we go we are rolling because it's not no it's not it's not it's not a close off it's it that is a qualification that is going to be followed by some information that you probably didn't necessarily want to share Great stuff, absolutely great. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I, I, I really, I do love this minute, and I have to admit that um, I did a little private uh, jump around the bedroom dance when you told me (laughs) that this was that this was the one you had in mind because I really do. I have a strange resonance for it, and part of that's professional, like we've been talking about, um, and part of it's just because I. It had been a while, maybe five or six years since I've seen the film, and the the moment I think about returning the film, all right, it's the moment that you gave me. So thank you, I should say.
0: Oh, well, look, I, I, sometimes, sometimes it's been osmosis. I, in this project, particularly what's been really wonderful is I've so rarely prescribed a minute to, uh, sorry, so rarely, um, uh, has someone asked, Oh, can I have this minute or can I do this minute in this one? I've been, yeah. very, I've been very prescriptive. I'm like, yep, we'll do this. And so it's usually just the order of things. And so I'm so glad that it's, it's actually lined up with what you want because, you know, and, and I might just say here is like a nice little tease. Um, uh, Alan Pakula's assistant on all the president's men is, um uh, is now a writer and been a director and a filmmaker and, and, and tours the, uh, the f- sort of filmmaking circuit with a lot of student filmmakers and things oh. like that. Uh, a man by the name of John Boston. Right. And uh, he is the only man so far that I've allowed to pick his minute um, because he was <laughs> in the, he was in the editing room, um, in the editing room with Pakul. I'm like this guy, I want to choose whichever minute that he wants to choose to discuss. Sure, sure. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's so nice to get to that moment. But uh, I mean, yeah.
2: I think if you do, if you do Zodiac, I have a minute already picked out for that one. As well,
0: well, look, Josh, this is what happens <laughs> on this show. Um, I am doing Zodiac. I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing it slightly differently than the last, than, than the last couple of shows. Um, uh, largely because we, I did a mini series with my great friend, Maria Lewis called Josie and the podcast, which was about the history and the production of the Josie and the Pussycats 2001 film. And I was the producer on that. Marie, Maria was the host and the, and the chief writer on that. And, um, So I'm doing 12 episodes of a Zodiac series coming up called Zodiac Chronicle. So it's splitting the movie into 12 Zodiac signs uh, and sort of unpacking it chronologically. Probably over a year. I might even do them one a month. I haven't decided yet because they're going to be quite um, extensively produced. um, So we'll definitely touch base Mm -hmm. after that. But look. Back to this film, back to this minute. I just want to say a huge thank you. It's been a great chat. It's been hugely insightful to hear, and it's so cool to talk to like another true Nixon head and and Watergate aficionado um, on this show and such a a great film mind of yours, and it's just a treat, so thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. We didn't even get to Trump.
0: There's so much more to discuss. Look, there's (laughs) there's a million more things to discuss. This this movie right now this movie right now, when I talk about when, when I wanted to do it and I, my desire was to do it for this year and to really, you know, get it out there in, in, in this year as a, in a direct dialogue with the American election um, coming up, yeah. I never would have, I never could have thought foreto- you know, could never have imagined that the the civil upheaval that was happening at the same time the political upheaval the social upheaval that it's all sort of converging and i feel like this movie whether we take a beautiful holiday to talk about you know historically significant things and we talk about cinema and we talk about that this movie helps drum up all those sorts of conversations which is why i think it's just like a true flat-out masterpiece like it's that beautiful intersection of that history that journalism that
2: it definitely, yeah, I'm sorry you dropped out there. It, it helps drum up a conversation. And I feel like, uh, in a way, it, the happy ending is kind of something we need to be reminded of because you can have the same dogged journalism as we've seen, yes. and it could even result in an impeachment and nothing happens. So watching all the president's men really reminds us that uh, it's not necessarily the outcome as much as the journey and the work that gets put into it. And I think that that's, I mean, that's, that has to be a happy ending.
0: And the progress, because at the end of this, the progress right. is that a, a president resigns. Now that there's still right. absolutely work to be done. And there's still a whole bunch of people that got prosecuted and litigated and right. and all those sorts of things. And, and all those systemic things where there were these totemic figures that had these little patches and did what they wanted and then got litigated for it. There's still a lot of work, but I, I think like that you said is, and if you, I said it a few times on the show, Steven Spielberg's Jaws for the first hour is a straight-up new Hollywood movie. Like, it isn't as new Hollywood as it gets. It's about a a cop who questionably goes off to another town, perhaps is reassigned. We don't know any of the history of that. And a mayor who would rather see his town eaten by deadly animals than to protect them. (laughs) And it's as new Hollywood as it gets. And then it turns into a monster movie. But I think with this... Uh, in '76, uh, as you said, it's the happy ending is just keep working, like keep your head down and right. keep doing it because there will be progress.
2: Be, it is going to be that's, hard, and that, and sometimes that's the only consolation. Like that's really what Zodiac's about. Sometimes, sometimes there you won't get the release that you need. You're just going to have to know that you did a good job and that your obsession that you were right that there was that there was an intrinsic value to the to the diligence and the obsession in and of itself of the results
0: Joshua Rothkopf, thank you so much for being a part of the show, um, now that you are uh, freelancing all around the place, is the best place to find you Twitter um, and, and and links off uh, to your good self and all of your work from there, is that the best place to find you?
2: Yes, follow me on Twitter at Josh Rothkopf, look for me on the Times website and I tweet everything out, but it's been such a pleasure uh, getting to know you and talking about this movie we love thanks for having me on like
0: That was the incredible and insightful Joshua Rothkopf. Josh can be found on Twitter at Josh Rothkopf, which is J-O-S-H-R-O-T-H-K-O-P-F. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes, a great and insightful episode. Man, we've got a lot of great episodes on One Hit Minute Productions in both All the President's Minutes and in... increment vice with host travis woods and our narrator cat corbett thank you guys so much for listening thanks for supporting one heat minute productions one heat to find the website and spin off into the other shows uh, miami nice is of course on a uh, on a hiatus at the moment uh, Incrementvice.com is where you can find everything about increment vice and if you can't support monetarily at the moment like so many people doing it tough all around the world please share Pass it on to a friend. Uh, if you know folk who love our specific brand of deep diving into films that need and deserve the scrutiny, please share it and share a like. If you do have uh, a little bit of extra uh, cash and you want to support the show, go on to Patreon forward slash Blake Howard. I will feed that into everything that's in the 1 Eight Minute Productions. But thank you so much for listening again to another episode of All the President's Minutes. More episodes every single week. Uh, we are speeding up production to have some really vibrant and essential conversations that we hope are having this corresponding dialogue with the time that we're experiencing right now so stay safe take care again a huge thank you for all of your time and if you are still listening what the hell are you doing